I'm Robin Mallory Pratt, and this is Transforming Luxury, a new podcast series from the business of fashion, in which we're investigating how market disruption, new technology, and increasing consumer scrutiny are driving transformative change in the $300 billion luxury goods market over a six-episode series presented by Klarna. In this episode, we'll establish how the events of 2020 have impacted the luxury industry, and we speak to Luca Solka and Melissa Morris about the widening performance gap between the mega brand super winners and smaller independent luxury companies. Plus, we explore the growing dissonance between luxury's traditional values and a more inclusive and sustainable global culture with Robin Gavan and Dana Thomas. In 2020, BOF reported that 75% of companies did not generate enough economic profit to cover the cost of their capital, while the leading mega brands and conglomerates reported record sales. To kick things off, we're going to take a snapshot of the luxury industry today and speak to Luca Solka, Managing Director of Luxury Goods at Bernstein, about the impact of scale-driven advantages and why luxury is becoming a winners-take-all market. I think that there are probably forces on both the demand and the supply side. When it comes to the supply side, we've seen the number of fronts that luxury goods brands need to manage has continued to explode. The digital revolution has brought so many new things that brands need to invest on that bigger brands clearly have a scale advantage. Think about the multiple social media platforms as an example. They need to have more frequent content. They need to invest in CRM and so on. When it comes to the demand side, a lot of the new luxury market growth is coming from middle-class consumers. Middle-class consumers are more conservative by definition. They buy less frequently. They don't want to make mistakes and they tend to prioritize bigger brands once again. This was further exacerbated by COVID-19 as uh, Chinese brand repatriation confronted Chinese consumers with higher prices, uh, which brought them to cut their shopping lists and concentrate their luxury dollars on the most prominent brands. How important is a real understanding of the cultural nuances of Chinese consumption in order to drive success in today's market? I think this is the core of the business. This has become the core of the business. Uh, The Chinese consumers account for the vast portion of the luxury goods market, making sure that they continue to be attracted to your brand and uh, making sure that you give them good reasons to part with their money and continue to buy your products is vital. So we cannot think of just Chinese adaptations in terms of operational marketing and, uh, and execution, we need to think much deeper. And brands, while staying true to their DNA, they need to take a lot more inputs from their Chinese senior managers. I, I think that the Chinese executives will play a larger and larger role in most groups as a consequence. How significant is marketing spend and has that changed given what we've experienced over the last year? When you have brands that make more than 10 billion euros of revenues per year and invest mid to high single digits in uh, communication, that creates a huge amount of firepower. And let's not forget that uh, these same brands also invest in uh, supporting traffic to their stores. The rise of pop-up stores has taken the industry by storm. This is one of the second level consequences of e-commerce. People can buy online 
They don't need to go to stores as frequently, and hence you need to invest to drive them to the stores, and that costs money as well, and is conducive, again, to scale-driven advantages. Why is CRM, or, or rather customer relationship management, growing in importance? Luxury goods brands need to concentrate on uh, their customers. They know all of them by name. They know what they're doing. They know what they're looking at. They know what they're saying. They know what they are buying. So an in-depth understanding of different consumer groups within uh, your portfolio and uh, therefore setting up your product offer, communication and broader marketing uh, approach to fit those different consumer audiences is going to be the most important capability that uh, companies will develop. In other words, CRM and uh, data science have to be at the core of what you do. And I think that quite simply, the data science department is going to be the new marketing engine of luxury goods companies. Most analysts agree that the luxury industry is expected to undergo a period of consolidation. What will that mean for the industry? When uh, we step back, we see that the global luxury goods industry is relatively young and uh, it would uh, just be natural if it consolidated down the road and would look more similar to other established industries like food, for example, or household and personal care. Uh, so I think the writing is on the wall and we've seen continuing consolidation in the most recent 25 or 30 years. Uh, the process will proceed, I expect. And it will probably involve bigger companies down the road because the conglomerates already have extraordinary amounts of complexity within them. If we have the likes of LVMH, Caring and Richemont focusing on bigger deals, bigger brands and really supercharging the impact of those brands with consumers, what does that mean for the small or mid-sized luxury companies? It very much depends on the ability of the leaders uh, at the top of these brands. We see that some of these brands, while having a relatively modest size, like Montclair, are doing very well indeed. Uh, others are not and have lost track of where consumer uh, demand is going and the uh, relevant criteria and values in the zeitgeist. So. I think it very much depends on each single brand and, and its ability to stay abreast of uh, market changes and also produce good retail space productivity. That becomes even more vital in this market. Now, a note from our partner, the CEO of Klarna, Sebastian Simiotkowski, who shares his insights generated by the payment company's 19 million active customers. One thing that a lot of people have perhaps misunderstood with COVID is obviously that for the unfortunate people that have been affected by it directly uh, or their jobs have been affected directly, it's obviously had a negative impact. But for the majority, big majority of people, we have more money than ever before because we've been forced to save money for 24 months, right? And so we haven't been traveling as much and we haven't been going to restaurants as much. And so that's actually affecting people's spending habits. And you have seen that especially in luxury, uh, like jewelry, for example. What we're seeing there is that female consumers are gifting and buying for themselves much more than before. So that is a very interesting uh, development. Given how significant the performance gap is between luxury's super winners and the rest of the industry, we wanted to dig a little deeper 
into what it takes for a small, independent luxury company to find success in today's market. Founding her luxury leather goods house Metier in 2017, Melissa Morris immediately opened a small store in London's Mayfair, against the prevailing advice she received at the time. However, that store has continued to be profitable from day one, and despite the disruption of 2020, Metier experienced its most successful year to date, generating triple-digit growth. Her customers include Kate Moss, Catherine the Duchess of Cambridge, Nicole Kidman, and Conor O'Brien. Melissa, thinking back to 2017, what space did you see in the market for a new luxury leather goods brand? I created the brand not because the world needed necessarily another handbag, but actually I thought it did. What I saw kind of missing or lacking was a few things coming together, which is why I started my brand. On the one side, I saw from working in luxury brands for a long time that because of the nature of the pace of the industry getting faster and faster and faster, it, you're, it's impossible to keep up and it's impossible to create products that are that perfect as they need to be in the luxury world. You just can't do it in that time. You're constantly chasing in terms of even from a development and production perspective, but also from a design perspective, you can't have the time to properly think things through. I think just by the sheer nature of it, that then erodes quality, um, which it's vital of, of, of a luxury product. You know, on top, because of the replacement model that exists in luxury now um, and all the seasons and how fast things are moving, you're also having to design into markdown margins. Can you tell me a little bit more about your business model? Our business model allows for a really profitable store model. We can have relatively small footprint stores because we have no markdowns. I don't have seasons. I don't have sizes. I don't have fitting rooms. So I don't have this constant glut of product. I can have these little jewel boxes in really prime locations, just slightly off the beaten track because that's very much how we operate. And they can you know, be highly profitable per square foot. How did your experience in the luxury industry inform your product strategy? My model is anti-replacement model. We have one bag for one journey, um, and I don't bring in another bag to to do the same job, and I don't change the bag unless the scope of the problem has changed. Like, if the fo- size of a phone changes, I have to change the bag. <laughs> it's a little annoying. But <laughs> <laughs> How many times have you had to change the bag? Uh, I started, I, exactly. I started just then giving a little extra space, and then even started, like, I created a chart of, like, where the phone sizes were going, and then I saw it starting to come down, and I was like, okay, thank God, you know? <laughs> so I tried to put a buffer there. You know, but because of, because it's anti-replacement model, What it is, though, is modular. And so you can buy your one bag and then the men's and women's one hero item that organizes all of your essentials. And then there's also our whole range of packing pouches. Each are dimensioned for a different type of item that you pack. And they stack in perfectly inside the bags. The wallets fit exactly into the wallet pockets. The collection and the structure of the collection is built. There's a lot of cues to say, if you've bought this, here are some things that could come next. And that's really where my focus is. Of course, I see what you know other people are doing in their business models. It's not that I don't pay attention to it or that I'm trying to go against that. It's just more, I believe, a successful business with longevity has to be anchored in a firm understanding of a customer. Um, And I think that this halo effect requires heavy, deep pockets and a lot of waste. A lot is being produced and not used. And I think that that strategy is one and clearly one that's very successful if we look at, you know, mega brands profitability. And I, of course, I recognize it. My strategy for creating a 
major global brand with longevity is different. I just am saying so focused on the customer. Having learned how market disruption has impacted the industry and entrenched the advantages of larger players, I want to turn now to another of the forces that are catalyzing change, and that is increasing consumer scrutiny of the opinions and operations of luxury brands and businesses. To do that, I'm delighted to introduce Robin Gavan, a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer and the senior critic at large for The Washington Post, who writes about politics, race and the arts. Robin, from the news reported internationally over the last 12 to 18 months, there is an impression that the cultural context around luxury in the United States has shifted, potentially to a meaningful degree. I will be guided by you as to what is driving that transformation, but from the outside, the murder of George Floyd, the reaction of protesters to luxury retail stores situated along their marching routes, the resurgence of cries to eat the rich, even the Biden administration's re-engagement with the global sustainability movement. In your opinion, has the conversation around luxury shifted? I do think there has been a shift in the tenor of the conversation around luxury. I'm always hesitant to sort of say whether or not an industry or expectations surrounding an industry have really fundamentally shifted because the inertia of the past is a challenging thing to break. But yeah, I think you're right. I mean, certainly the social justice protests over the past year, the economic issues left uh, behind because of the pandemic and the ongoing concern about um, issues related to sustainability and just our cultural tendency for overconsumption. And then I think, you know, there has always been a kind of simmering distrust or a simmering skepticism about the luxury industry and just sort of how relevant and important it is to to people's lives. You know, I think, you know, the argument is always that luxury is an indulgence. It is something that can bring people joy. But, you know, there's always been a bit of skepticism surrounding that. And I, and I think all of these things have kind of come together to create an environment in which a lot of people are looking at the luxury market as a place that really should be viewed through a skeptical lens and really should be reworked and reinvented with a complete tonal shift. How vulnerable do you think the luxury industry is to its relevance shifting in the minds of consumers? I tend to think that the luxury industry is extremely vulnerable. And I say that not based on sort of the affection that the diehards have for luxury, you know, sort of the choir that the luxury industry preaches to, but rather that broader consumer who is a, a sometimes consumer of luxury. And, you know, I think those people look at the industry and the idea of the craftsmanship, yeah, it's there and it's certainly a justification sometimes for the cost and for the indulgence. But I think what really um, stands out for people and what the luxury industry really markets is this idea of exclusivity and status and rarity. And at the moment, right now, I, I think that the I, notion of exclusivity really 
strikes people as a simply exclusion and the idea that, you know, certain people are not embraced by the luxury industry. And when I say certain people, you know, I think for a while that was aimed at, you know, why doesn't luxury embrace more plus size customers or why is the advertising not more diverse? I think now that really has expanded to an enormous degree so that, um, you know, there's just this greater demand for representation, which I think luxury, like much of the fashion industry, continues to sort of struggle with. What do you think has held luxury back from having a more inclusive strategy? I think for years, the luxury market has just had a tendency to define its customer as opposed to defining the mindset of the customer. You know, they had a particular look uh, that they envisioned and you would see it in the advertising. And that look was a, a tall, thin young woman and you know you see it on the runway and as much as a lot of designers talk about um, wanting to dress a wide range of men and women um you know they they still have this iconic image in their mind the women and the men who have inspired them have inspired designers over you know many decades and you know i think that translates and customers pick up on that. Customers are very savvy and they recognize when a brand isn't really speaking to them or is only speaking to them grudgingly. You know, and I think it's also because you form a relationship with an attachment to the things that surround you and that are familiar to you. And for years, um, you know, the luxury world behind the scenes just was not particularly diverse. And so, again, you tend to end up speaking in a very narrow way. And for all of the enthusiastic, oh, like everyone is welcome. I think we all know that when you arrive at the party, whether or not you really are welcome or, you know, they sort of have to open the door to you. I think in many ways, you know, life business can be a continuation of junior high school. (laughs) Oh, no, I've opened a can of worms. (laughs) I won't ask you to name tribes. (laughs) By that, I just mean that so much of luxury is about being perceived as part of the in crowd, the cool crowd. It's it's part of sitting at the top of, of the pyramid, getting behind the velvet rope. I mean, however many different uh, cliches about sort of being able to sort of get into the club. You know, that has always been the subtext of of luxury. I mean, it's the reason for uh, the limited edition drops and the reason for, you know, the one-off collections and, and all of those things, which just sort of underscore this idea that it's not for everyone. When that's the way that you, you run a business and when the culture starts shifting around you and saying that, well, everything should be open to everyone, 
then it sort of runs contrary to, you know, your, your sort of business practice. And that's not to make an argument that luxury should suddenly become mass fashion. I mean, that's not it at all. I mean, I think that there is a wonderful thing about things that are, you know, are precious and rare and beautifully crafted and can eventually become almost an heirloom that you want to hand down to another generation. I think the argument is simply that everyone has that fantasy. Everyone sort of has that dream. And it's not watering down the merchandise or the dream to simply recognize that a lot more people can connect to it than you may have originally presumed. When we think about the sometimes luxury consumer, as you named them, the middle class consumers that drive the success of many of the largest luxury brands, has anything changed post-pandemic in terms of these people's individual reactions to it? For the most part, once you get beyond the coast and you get beyond some of the main larger cities like Chicago or Atlanta, for most people, the idea of luxury is spending a hundred or two hundred dollars on a pair of shoes. You know, it's not a pair of one thousand dollar shoes. I mean, that's just sort of absurdity for a lot of people. So I think that for them, their concerns are much more basic in terms of what they want to spend their money on. But I also think that they are much more enamored with all of the things that luxury, the fashion luxury world competes against, which is technology, which is, um, you know, experiences and travel. If nothing else, it, it seems to me that this would be a really excellent time for the industry to, to try and be more inclusive because it just means bringing in more customers, exciting more customers, new customers. And, you know, I, I think that it's clearly the idea of exclusivity might be well replaced with the idea of, of aspirational because in a purely financial way, you sort of open yourself up to a lot more, many more customers without losing the magic and the fantasy um, and the dream quality of, of luxury. The rising demand for a more inclusive luxury industry is only one of the major shifts in consumer sentiment that is taking place today. In a survey conducted by consultancy McKinsey back in May 2020, more than three in five consumers said that a brand's promotion of sustainability was an important factor in their purchasing decisions, creating a growing conflict between the priorities of luxury consumers and the need to generate maximum profit to please shareholders. To discuss this further, I'm joined now by another renowned author and writer, Dana Thomas, who wrote the New York Times bestseller, Deluxe, How Luxury Lost Its Luster, as well as Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion and the Future of Clothes two books that effectively dispelled the marketing myths of the fashion and luxury industries to identify the sometime reality of a mass market value proposition and production methods. There's lots of luxury companies that are producing in places like Bangladesh and they're using the same factories as the fast fashion companies and using, it's the same business model, it's just got more zeros on the end. Dana, let's talk about the reality of waste in the luxury industry. 
We produce 100 billion clothing or apparel items a year, roughly. It's not a fixed number. It's somewhere between like 90 and 120. So we just say 100. And of that, we only sell 80. So 80% of the clothes that are produced annually are sold. 20% are thrown away or destroyed before they ever even hit the shop floor. And that's called economies of scale because it's cheaper to produce 100 red sweaters and throw away 20 when they look at their balance sheets than it is to produce 80 because of the cost of yarn and because you have to buy and gross and la 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 la. But the, the, the spreadsheets they're looking at are very compartmentalized and they're not taking into the account like the amount of waste, the amount of energy, the electricity, the water, the time of, for the people working, the, the, the landfill they're filling, the energy to put all that stuff in the landfill, the, the garbage trucks, all of that in that 20% they're just chucking. They're just like looking at their tiny little numbers that they've crunched and said, oh, but if we make 100, it'll only cost us 10. If we make 80, it'll cost us 12. Well, that's you know a very narrow way of looking at your, at your impact, your global impact. And that's why companies like Caring are really interesting when they've come up with uh, the EP&L, the Environmental Profit and Loss, where they, they do measure their impact as well as just their profit and loss in pure numbers. And when you see how much waste there is and you see that you could be making more profit and less loss across the board if you have less waste, that waste is costly. Pollution is cheap. Pollution is the cheapest way to do business. But waste is costly when you start looking at it in the bigger picture of your, of your true profit and loss. People are becoming more aware of living sustainably. Are luxury companies more exposed to its consumers' attitudes shifting than some other industries? I think they are far more vulnerable and far more exposed than they think they are. Far more than they think they are. These companies think they're omnipotent, right? Masters of the universe. And they do not really, they talk about it. They talk a really good game about sustainability. And I don't think it's greenwashing. They actually believe what they say, but to do it is another thing. And to do it costs money. And it's a long-term investment. And these companies, because they're so wedded to their quarterly returns and their stock market prices and the daily numbers going up and down, they're afraid to make those long-term investments, quite honestly. It takes a lot of courage and you have to take it on the chin initially in order to make it pay off in the long term. And they don't want to take it in the chin today. So the companies that have made some changes or just started from scratch in a green manner, like someone like Stella McCartney, they're at an advantage to be sure, because they're facing the future today and they're, they're adapting. You can't tweak the old model. It doesn't work. You have to come up with a whole new model. The shape of that new model and how it reflects the forces rapidly transforming the luxury industry is the subject matter of our series. But before we come to the end of episode one, I think it fitting to close with something Luca Solka had said. There's a lesson that we need to retain from looking at the industry during the most re recent 30 years is that nothing is forever. And what some people perceive as an industry based on heritage and based on tradition is in fact a very vibrant and innovative industry and it has to remain so. 
That's it for this episode. A huge thank you to Lucas Solka, Melissa Morris, Robin Gavan, and Dana Thomas. And of course, our partners, Klarna. Next week, I'm discussing the new priorities that define a luxury good. We're speaking to stylist Serena Akers, founder of Black Owned Everything and the costume designer of Beyonce's visual album, Black is King. Network CEO, Aaron Levant, the designer, Bethany Williams, and crypto artist, Ferocious. In the meantime, make sure you're following Transforming Luxury wherever you get your podcasts, so you're guaranteed to get the latest episodes as soon as they're available. I'm Robin Mellory-Pratt. Thanks for listening.